Thank you to the desk. Thank you to the band. We're privileged to have a band to help lead us as a small church to lead us into worship. Thank you so much um, for that. We're going to, um, just before we come to Pentecost, we've got uh, just a few things that Jesus said, and we're going to go to Matthew 28 and to the Great Commission. In the military service, if you're not quite sure what your command is, you go back to the last command. <laughs> and that's, no, that's the same thing within Christianity too. We're all of us under commission. We're all under a command. And this is the great commission of Jesus. And he says this, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus did not call us to make converts or churchgoers or church members. He called us to make disciples. And we are coming into an era and to an age, I suspect, of church life where there won't be much room left, really, for church membership and churchgoers. There won't be many of those left. What will be left are the disciples who have laid down their life for him and will follow him, will listen to his words and will obey him. And that's what we're called to make, disciples, were called to himself, not to choose me, but to choose him. For Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Amen. So what is a disciple? Well, we're going to have a whole series on that, <laughs> but for now, I just want to raise three points. Firstly, it's a willingness to serve Secondly, a willingness to listen. And thirdly, a willingness, it's got out of my head, <laughs> to learn. There we go. <laughs> and to remember would be helpful as well, wouldn't it? A willingness to remember. Let's pray. Let's pray. I need prayer. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we're called to follow you, to put you first even before our own lives. To go your way, not ours. To choose you, not us. And to be obedient to you. For there is life, and there are the rewards that you have for us. Teach us what it means to be a true disciple. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, firstly, a disciple is someone who's willing to serve. Willing to serve others by serving him. So we serve him through serving others. Ultimately, everything that we do for others is going to be a service to him. So when you serve in the church or you serve in the kingdom, you may do that to others, but ultimately you're going to do it to him. And it's a heart of service because Jesus has come as one who serves. And the thing that a disciple does is that the disciple imitates, copies, if you like, what their master does. 
I'm going to take you to three scriptures on this subject of um, discipleship. And the first one is Mark chapter 10, verse 35. You can get to that. Mark chapter 10, verse 35. This is the request of James and John. And you may recall, I mean, James and John sound quite young, don't they? I get the impression they're quite young. They're full of fire and zeal, but they're quite young and quite a little bit pushy. Even mum gets involved at one point. So, you know, this is who they are. And they're making a request to Jesus. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. I think that sums up perfectly the modern Christian mindset, doesn't it? I think that's a brilliant way, isn't it? Lord, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. (laughs) And Jesus, in his grace, says, What do you want me to do for you? And they replied, Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other one at your left in your glory. (laughs) It's no small thing then. What do you want? We want it all. Basically, when you come into your glory, and bear in mind that Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God, the eternal creator of all time. When you, the creator of all time, the pre-existent Son of God, come into your glory, we want it too. We want to be sat on the left and sat on the right. Thank you very much. We might even get our mum involved to try and push the case forward. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? We can, verse 39. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right and sit at my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those whom they have been prepared. And when the ten heard about this, they become indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them together and he said this. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them? Well, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In Matthew's account, he adds this from Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel, he will not cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. Humble servant. And that's who Jesus was. And he's saying to his disciples, listen, if you want to be my disciple, you need to learn how to serve me. And you need to learn how to serve one another. Because the reason you're here is to enable each other to cross the line. You're here to support love and care for each other and to reach out to this world. And God wants all of us over that line. He wants all of us to get to the end of this journey that we're on. And we're on this journey together. And it's so important we understand that one of the true marks of discipleship is that it's not about me, me, me. It's about all of us. All of us together, helping each other, supporting each other on this journey of faith that we are in. And establishing for one another this ability to be able to get across the line at the end of the day, at the end of this journey, at the end of this battle, and the many metaphors that Paul uses to describe the Christian life, that we get there and we cross that race line and we finish it 
in his name. In 1996, I don't know if you remember this, I, I do actually recall it, but in 1996, an American 400 meter runner, world famous, he was one of the, he was the world champion at the time. Um, he was running in the, um, the Olympics in Barcelona and um, about halfway around the course, his hamstring breaks and he's in agony. And he decides not to give up, amazingly enough. And rather than giving up, he starts to hobble towards the line. He's got about 200 meters to go. And everyone is cheering him on from the stands. It's in Barcelona, 1996. His name is Derek Redman. He was the number one um, athlete for the 400 meters in the USA. I've got a little clip to show you what happens. Something happens halfway through that moment. God calls us all as his disciples to come alongside each other, to be his arms and to be his shoulder and to help carry us all over the line. It's about being together as one. We're stronger together. J. John found, um, sorry, he had somebody come to him who had found a little note in a children's book bag. And I don't know whether, I don't think the child had written it because it's quite adult in writing, but they had kept it in their book bag. And it said this, I'm only one, but I am one. I cannot do everything, but I can do something. What I can do, I ought to do. And what I ought to do, I do by the grace of God. The first point of being a disciple is serving one another by serving him. The second is a willingness to listen. Interestingly enough, we're not just called to learn a way or learn a method. We're called into a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Jesus didn't say, look, I want you to recite this to his disciples. I want you to learn that. He said, follow me. Share your life with me. Be at one with me. Open your heart to me and I'll open my heart to you. Because we're not just called by him, we're called to him. And so it's a relationship, and it means remaining close to him. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because we don't have to turn to it, but in John 21, where Jesus restores Peter, what does Jesus say to Peter? He doesn't say, Simon, son of John, have you learned everything that I've taught you? He doesn't say, Simon, son of John, can you recite the things that you should know? Or can you look back at the things that you should have done? He says, Simon, son of John, what does he say? Do you love me? That's right at the very heart of everything that we do for him. We can't be a disciple of Christ unless we can answer that question. That's why he says it to Peter, right at the, at the beginning of his restoration. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And if we do, and we carry that mark of his presence on us, then we do that by listening and praying and waiting. It's a discipline. It's what it means to be a disciple. 
We need to learn how to spend time in his presence. I'm just going to read you a little extract from Tony Campolo's story. <laughs> I keep going back to Tony Campolo. You do know Tony Campolo, don't you? You should do by now, because I keep mentioning him. This is um, Tony Campolo when he was younger. He said, as a teenager, I hated to go to Sunday evening church. It wasn't that I was down on church. It was just that on Sunday evenings, the preacher was never prepared. In the morning, the sermon had three points and a poem, and then you were out of there. But in the evening, the preacher was all over the place. You knew he was just shooting from the hip, and worse than that, he hadn't even picked out the hymns. You can always tell when the preacher hadn't picked out the hymns, because he looks over the congregation with a big smile as though he's going to do people a favor, and he says, tonight, I'm going to let you pick the hymns. Does anybody have a favorite hymn? <laughs> On most Sunday evenings at my church, way back then, Mrs. Kirkpatrick, who always sat on the right-hand side, three rows back, would raise her hand and say, 122 in the tabernacle hymnal. I hated 122 in the tabernacle hymnal. I hated it because I was a kid who had learned to survive on the tough streets of West Philadelphia by acting tough. I never got into a fight because I didn't have to fight. I just knew how to walk. I knew how to saunter down the street with an insolent look on my face and stare people down. Nobody messed with me. I wasn't really that tough. I just projected tough. It was a tough image and that was my protection. And on Sunday evenings, I would saunter into the church and sit down next to my mother, who insisted that I'd be there for every service, and I'd slouch in my seat and cringe inwardly when we had to sing 122 in the tabernacle hymnal. I just not that kind of kid. I hated that song. Any kid who was trying to act tough could not sing that song. I came to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. Ugh! To me, at age 15, that song seemed awfully icky. The second verse was even worse. He speaks and the sound of his voice is so sweet, the birds hush their singing. Oh, that hymn definitely did not fit my macho image. I hated it. That's because I was 15. <laughs> but the older I get, the more I love to sing 122 in the tabernacle hymnal. The older I get, the more I love to sing those words and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I'm his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. And you've got to get some years under your belt before you can feel yourself wrapped in those words and enjoy the spiritual fulfillment of going into the garden alone, where especially in the stillness of the night, you can feel his presence permeate your whole being and saturate your soul. We need to learn how to sit at his feet and listen to him. I'm going to take you to another scripture. It's Luke chapter 10. In your church Bibles, it's page 1042, 1042. Luke chapter 10 and verse 38. You'll know it well. It is the story of the home of Martha and Mary. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. 
But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made, and she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha. You know you're in trouble when the Lord uses your name twice, don't you? Martha, Martha. That's Simon, Simon, isn't it? Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things. But verse 42, this has been retranslated. This is, I think, the most accurate translation. Verse 42, but few things are needed. Oh, we need to hear that, don't we? As modern day Christians, you're worried and upset over many things, but few things are needed. Few things are needed. Mary's found one of the things that is most needed. She's chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. To sit and to listen and to sit at his feet, to wait for him, to listen for his voice. That's what the sheep do. And the closer they are to him, the clearer they will hear. My sheep listen to my voice. It's a sign of what we do. It's an interesting thing that, John, that Jesus says in John chapter 10. He could have said all kinds of things about the sheep. But the first thing he says, the most important thing he says, is that his disciples are listeners. We're listeners to his voice and followers of his command. The second thing we do then is we learn by prayer, and it may just be an hour a day. Could you not tarry for one hour, Jesus said of his disciples? That's all. But one hour a day in prayer to listen for his voice and to pray to him and to sit at his feet that's what we need to be effective in our discipleship so firstly then we're called to serve secondly we're called to listen thirdly we're called to learn I've got an example here about how we can make mistakes because one of the ways that we learn most effectively is to make mistakes isn't it now, if I was to ask you, have you ever made a mistake? And if you, if you haven't never made a mistake, and you put your hand up and says, no, I've never made a mistake, I'd be curious, because that wouldn't make you a human being then. You would be more than a human. Because all of us, because we're human, make mistakes. And the Gospels are littered, aren't they? I love it. They're littered. But I just read one mistake with James and John. Of course, they've got others as well. But the one who made the most mistakes, he's, kind of a, he's got the trophy for mistakes, <laughs> was, of course, Simon Peter. Uh, but I love the fact that he learns through his mistakes and, and the Lord kind of gets him through that journey and that's how it's done. Um, in 1979, the Guardian newspaper reported that a team of scientists decided to do an underwater diving research in a remote Scottish lock. Having secured permission from the owner of the lock, they were based in Cornwall. They drove 700 miles up to Scotland to the mountain and they dragged all their scientific filming and diving equipment 3,000 feet up to the mountain plateau where the lock was. And when the marine scientists got there with all of their diving equipment, they discovered an amazing thing about the lock. It's only six inches deep. It was, it was the wrong lock, if you like. It was a peculiar sort of plateau of water. It was very, very shallow and not very big. We all make mistakes, don't we? And in that, we learn. Now, Matthew, in Matthew's Gospel, reports how Jesus, sorry, how Simon Peter makes 
a huge mistake, and I'm going to take you to that passage of Scripture. Matthew 16 and verse 21. Matthew 16, verse 21. It doesn't matter if you make mistakes as a disciple. That's part of being a disciple. It's a learning process. It's a journey. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Now this has been retranslated different times. You might have, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. I think a better translation is, you think as men think, not as God thinks. And I think that's one of the clear marks of growing in discipleship. Learning how to think as God thinks and not as men think. It's a key part of our learning. And we can do that mostly for our life experience, by our mistakes, if you like, more so than anything else. It's how we live out our faith that's one of the keys to discipleship. Some of the most powerful lessons we have in our lives are actually concerned with obedience, obedience to the Lord. The philosopher Soren Kierkegaard once said, it's so hard to believe because it's so hard to obey. There is no truth without obedience. In other words, we learn how to keep close to him, how to walk with him, how to listen to him. And that's how we are as disciples. Our belief, our faith is in what we do as we work that out. Because the Christian church is not a club. It's not something for us so that our needs might be met. It's something for him. In fact, all the words in scripture that refer to the church refer to that which is totally committed, that which is locked in and is part of it. It's a body, it's a family, it's an army, it's a building. There's a, you're locked in and totally committed to one another. It's not about our feelings and personal choices. It's about him. We're no longer our own. We're chosen by him and called by him. We're bought by him and we belong to him and we belong to each other, however joyful or however painful that may be. (laughs) If the cost is great, the aims, the privileges, the rewards are infinitely greater. For Jesus said these words, the glory that you have given me, Father, I have given to them that they may be one, even as you and I are one. Let's pray.